folks. Welcome to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patrick. Two Feet Apart is a space for individuals to learn that language matters, that words mean things, that to embrace diversity means to practice inclusivity within the LGBTQ plus Indigenous, people of color, and Black communities. To embrace diversity means to provide accessible practices for those who possess visible and invisible disabilities. It's a space to place egos in the crevices of our beings in hopes of broadening mental horizons to foster growth. It's a space to fuel mindfulness. It's a space to emulate vulnerability in the sharing of our stories because our stories are our greatest strengths and our strongest powers, our superpowers. With that in mind, happy listening. Jessica, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I can't even remember how exactly I came across you on Instagram. I feel like someone shared something to do with like Bloom Academy and uh, Mm -hmm. you were mentioned in it. And then I clicked and I was like, curly hair, inclusive, like all the things. And I'm like, I need to, I need to know more. Um, And then following your page and the more you kind of shared about yourself, I was like, yeah, we're going to be friends. Um, (laughs) So then I was like, I definitely have to have you on a podcast. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I'm always happy to hear that there's something that like hooks folks into learning more about me. Um, Social media is such a wild experience because there's so many people that cross your path and you're like, you know what? I am very interested in what you have to offer. And I'm just seeing like a small like piece of the pie here. And now I'm like, I need to know more. And then when they share more and more, it's like, okay, my hunch was right. You are someone I'm going to befriend. I've done that so many times with people where I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait for them to share a story or something so I can respond to this and I can start the conversation because I think that you're so cool. So thank you for uh, just being interested in what I have to say, because I also was like looking at your page. I was like, okay, the aesthetic elite uh, the content fantastic <laughs> has a podcast iconic many mutual folks that like we both follow interesting yeah. interests I'm here for it so thank you so much for having me on here I really value taking time out of your day to hear what I have to say I love it um so obviously I have learned a lot about you from chatting with you and from your Instagram and things like that but maybe you can tell um the listeners maybe take a few minutes to just like tell us about yourself, your story. Oh, awesome. Okay. My stories. I don't even know where to start, but I guess we can start a little (laughs) bit at the beginning and also share my name. So hi everyone. My name is Jessica. I also am trying to go by Jessica Taylor these days. I think Jessica is a little basic, so I'm trying to spice it up like Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, Uh, I like it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. I like to share my pronouns because I think it's a really empowering exercise for folks to create like that inclusive space. Um, I am a DI, senior DI advisor at Blooms, as you mentioned, through like Bloom Academy, which is an amazing business, a workplace design consultancy. Um, But my journey didn't really start there. Uh, My journey was like most folks' journeys, a bit of a roller coaster. Um, I'm from, actually, I'm from Louisiana. I was adopted from the U.S. to Canada when I was like nine months old. And I grew up in a rural town in, you know, Ontario. It's called Dorchester. If anyone knows where that is, um, I don't know, maybe I'll get you like a Starbucks gift card because whenever folks know where that is, <laughs> I'm so surprised. So, for folks listening, if you know where Dorchester is, that's fantastic. So I grew up in that like very, it's a small town. Everyone kind of knows everyone. Um, I was really like the only person of color really in my community whatsoever. Um, and I kind of just moved through that experience being, I think for most folks, like being a teenager sucks. I, if anyone tells me that they mm-hmm. like love high school and they loved being a teenager, I go, what utopian experience did you have? Because I feel like most folks as a teenager, it's a really weird experience. Um, So yeah, that definitely for me being in a small town, um, also being someone who, while I was a teenager, really struggled with mental illness and trying to kind of figure out my way. um, I decided, okay, I'm going to move out. (laughs) I'm going to go and 
see what else is out there. So I went to school and got a degree in social work in Windsor. Um, In my eyes, like my world kind of blew up then. I remember just for the first time seeing folks that like look like me, um, seeing folks that are similar to me, different from me, um, being able to like be curious about myself and really like learn more about the program that I'm in. Um, And I'm super grateful that I chose a degree that I like. Um, I think for a lot of folks, university is not designed to set folks up for success whatsoever. I consider myself very lucky Mm -hmm. to have found a program that is something that I could create a life with or create a career, I should say. Um, So while I I was in school, initially I wanted to be a counselor. I think a lot of folks go into like social work or psychology thinking they're going to be like, I don't know, Sigmund Freud, minus like the racism and misogyny, but (laughs) they're going to be like Sigmund Freud. Um, And in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a counselor. And I started doing a lot of volunteering um, and I did my placement and I did a placement at an Aboriginal education center. And that just really opened my eyes to the need of being intersectional, anti-oppressive and the amazing things that we can do with education. So that kind of like opened my eyes a little bit to what my future could look like, graduated, moved to Toronto. And then like most folks, it's like, wait, I have to find a job. I don't know how to do that. This is, what do you mean? Like, I thought that this was like a land of opportunities. So I, you know, I kind of stumbled around, worked as a barista for a little while and eventually started working in an English language school. Um, And I love that. I love that so much. But I still in the back of my mind was like, I want to be a counselor. I want to do all I want to help people Mm -hmm. change their lives. Um, And then as I got older and I navigated through the mental health space, I worked at um, as like someone who did a lot of risk assessments at a mental health organization. I realized that to be a good clinician, you really don't talk. Good clinicians empower folks, allow them to tell their stories. And your job is to listen, um, provide opportunity for reflection, um, and you're not talking a lot. Um, And I love to talk. And I realized that if I wanted to be good at my job, I need to find a different career um, because no one wants to go speak with a counselor and not be able to get a word in. Um, So I decided to pursue a, a career in education. And I just kind of took all my experiences and I started teaching social service work. Um, And that was fantastic. Being able to take all of my experience, you know, going to school, my lived experience being like the only minority in my community, my experience with mental illness. um, And I just decided, okay, I'm going to do this for a while. I love it. It's interesting. And then I came across Avery, the founder of Bloom. And just, you know, she shares such fantastic content. And one day she shared some content that I just found was really powerful, but there was an opportunity for further clarification, an opportunity, I think, for her to like deepen her connection with her community. Um, And I sent her a message kind of like calling her in. And she was in a way like, I think, shocked by that experience, because I, I think my approach really resonated with her. And she's like, okay, let's keep in touch. Um, so eventually Bloom was providing an opportunity to hire some DI advisors. And because I've been following Avery for so long, I applied. Um, and we had a few interviews. Obviously, it was an equitable interview process, despite like us already having that experience before. And I found myself working there. So I've been at Bloom now as a DI advisor. I'm now a senior DI advisor at the team. Um, and we do a lot of fantastic work at like the intersections of all of my experiences, whether that be like growing up in rural Canada to my experience being like a person of color, being adopted. Um, I feel like I've kind of like found the perfect job for me in a way because I get to help folks make work meaningful and safe. But I think people forget that you bring yourselves to work and the home still shows up at work. Your experiences with your family still show up at work. Um, And allowing folks to kind of connect all those dots is, is a really lovely experience. So that's kind of what I do, who I am, how I got here. That was a lot. I'm sorry, folks. I'm definitely a chatty person. So hopefully that's enough for everyone to kind of summarize my stuff. Yeah, I love it. Um, So I just want to kind of like back. There's so many different points that I want to touch on here. Um, Of course. One of them you mentioned, which I love, is that, you know, people recognize now that you have like when you come to work, you're bringing like your personal experiences, you're bringing 
um, all of your lived experiences, you're bringing your home life, all of those things. Um, and how do you think those things that you experienced growing up, like living in a rural community, um, being adopted, things like that, how do you think those shaped um, kind of your decision to go into this and like how you mm-hmm. reflect that into other people? Ooh, that's a that's a really great question. Um, I think for me, a few things. I remember being at work and struggling with my depression. And I remember just I was sick like all the time. And I remember just feeling like bad because I was, I consider myself a great employee. Like I'm someone who doesn't want to do a bad job at work. I really thrive in high trust environments because my anxiety, I'm going to stress myself enough out. Like I want to do well. You don't have to worry about mm-hmm. me. Like I'm going to police myself. But when, you know, you're struggling with depression and you're struggling with anxiety, it can be really hard to show up. And then sometimes if, even if you're going to work, you get sick because your body's like, mm-hmm. you need to take care of yourself. You're not, you know, mentally well and physically you're not well now either because something's kind of got to give. And I just remember how, unaffirming those experiences were. I remember being at work and there like never being a discussion of Black History Month. Um, I remember a lot of folks just like talking about things that were so nonchalant to them that in my mind, I'm like, well, this isn't something that everyone can relate to. Um, And despite me being like a really outspoken person, I still felt like I was kind of like nagging. I was like, you know what, if I bring it up, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a nag. Um, especially through the lens of when I was working in mental health, intersectionality is so important, but I wasn't seeing it being applied. I wasn't seeing it in the approaches within like the organizational structure. Um, I wasn't seeing a diversity for the folks who are providing those services. And I thought to myself, I got to find a different, a different way of doing things. I have to find a way to see where the problem lies and how I can approach this problem. And I got really lucky that I spent a lot of time and realized it was a lot of the systems level issues Um, from a systems perspective, um, how we learn about diversity doesn't happen in our school. At least I think growing up, like it didn't happen for me and for a lot of folks. So I think at a baseline level, folks aren't set up for success. Um, Folks aren't set up to have these conversations. So like, how are they going to meaningfully uh, weave it into their organizational structure so that the experiences that folks have are good? Um, And I kind of reflected on that because I was even seeing that when I was teaching. I was seeing those othering experiences that my students would have, and those were Mm -hmm. them interacting with policies. So I realized I need to find someone who's systems minded. um, And I kind of found that with Bloom. And it was just like such a great match. I love it. And it's so incredible to watch the difference in people speaking about their career path when it's something they're passionate about and like really called to versus something that they're like, yeah, I do this for work kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So even Mm -hmm. just seeing like your face light up as you speak about Bloom is so empowering. And genuinely, like, my wish for everybody is just that they are able to also find, like, that style of career. Um, So my understanding of Bloom is, like, you know, it's the academy, there's online courses, um, workshops, things like that. Um, Is that more catered towards businesses and making your workspace more, like, systems-minded Or is it like, are there individual programs just for people that aren't very familiar with it? Or maybe like their interest is peaked, but they're like, I don't know if this is something that, you know, is something I could enroll in. No, of course. Great question. So uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Bloom is like a workplace design consultancy. So we have two different like areas of the business. We have recruitment and talent advisory on one side, and that works with HR and supporting folks throughout their recruitment processes. Um, And then we have like the DI side as well. So on the DI side, we have Bloom Academy. So there are services for folks to basically learn how to create more inclusive environments in a way that's like sustainable, actionable, and works for their needs. Um, That's like, you know, barrier-free, shame-free, and folks can like ask the questions that they might feel a little bit apprehensive for. So there's like Bloom Academy for individuals. So this could be for folks who work in an organization. Let's say you work at like, I don't know, 
Staples, for example, and you are an HR professional at Staples and you want to learn how to support folks better at your work, you could register as an individual and take the eight work eight week long program. Um, and there is a track that's dedicated for folks who are in organizations or in workplaces. So this is, might be for HR leaders, managers, um, folks in the C-suite as well, CEOs, people that are just trying to design through the lens of inclusion, their policies or practices and how they interrelate with one another. Um, and then there's a secondary track as well. And these are for folks who are like entrepreneurs, business owners, folks who exist online are creating content online. Um, so that might be someone who has like a large social media platform, influencers that need to know how to add to a space versus taking up a space, um, how to create content that's inclusive using image descriptions and alternate text, um, how to use language that's inclusive. And we do this in a two-track way because we've kind of created like a foundational programming that all the individuals would go and participate in, and then they kind of separate into their niches. So within the organizational realm, and then um, for folks who are marketers or entrepreneurs. So that is something that we do multiple cohorts throughout the year. So we had we had a spring semester, a spring cohort, we had like a winter cohort cohort. Um, and then we'll also be having a fall one as well. Um, this year we'll be doing like a summer school, which will be a little bit of like a unique programming because we know that folks like are on vacation. It's really hard to block off like eight weeks uh, when people are maybe going away, going camping. I don't know if people do camping anymore, <laughs> going to their cottage. Um, yeah, I love camping. So we've kind of created a unique program for folks in the summer. But like that is also something that if you owned a business or you're an organization and you thought, oh my gosh, my whole entire team could benefit from this, we also do that as well for organizations where they can enroll in the core programming, choose a la carte because we have different other community-based sessions like courageous conversations or like anti-black racism training or pride programming. Um, and it's just such a full library of opportunity for learning. And we really just meet folks where they're at. That's beautiful. And how do you think that that um, fits in with kind of the usage and things of social media right now? Um, because I know you mentioned like image descriptions and alt uh, alt text, which like I even personally use on my personal account. Um, but I find that kind of introducing some of these practices into social media um, is super important and it's like slowly getting there. But do you see that reflected in the work that you do as well? Um, so I think for a lot of folks, when it comes to social media, we've created this sense of like there's this, and this is, I think, in many different industries, like what an average user is. So like we'll create content for the average user, um, forgetting that folks who might need captions, um, it's not just for folks who are hard of hearing or deaf, it could just be for someone whose baby is sleeping and they don't want to mm -hmm. turn their sound on because they're trying to engage with your content. Creating accessible content is beyond, um, is really for everyone. It's beyond just like closed captions and image descriptions. It's how like you color contrast your photos. It could be something as simple as like how you're putting the links in your videos. Um, contents and trigger warnings, that is a huge part of creating inclusive content. Um, and I think a lot of the trends that we're seeing is a lot of folks are realizing that when you are creating a brand that is that you really care about, I think, especially for folks who have a large following, you want to like serve, serve your community because your followers in a lot of way are your community and they're going to be a diverse groups of folks. So there's no way that you can have like this universal generalist approach to, um, you know, creating a video like, oh, some people will return to it. I don't need captions, but mm -hmm. realistically, like, a lot of folks do. Um, so creating content that everyone can meaningfully engage in is a really great way for you to deepen your connection to your not only your community, but your commitment to DI and being an ally and being anti-racist and anti-ableist. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to even just flag something that you said there. One of the things you had mentioned is like trigger warnings being important. And I read mm -hmm. something interesting um, on an influencer, I guess, content creators page um, a few weeks ago. And her thing was that she shows like self-harm scars. 
And a couple people had commented saying like they would have appreciated trigger warnings. Um, but she says that, you know, in her perspective and her experience, that they're unnecessary because she doesn't need to put a warning on her body. Um, and I'm just curious to know what your thoughts on that are. Oh, wow. That's such a great question. Hot take question. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Can, I'm going to try and give you a few different answers. And I think the first answer is that, yes, you know, who am I to tell you what to do with your body? And I, mm-hmm. and I firmly believe that. So that's going to be like my stamp throughout my whole messaging here. Um, but I think that there's also an opportunity to recognize that seeing those images can be extremely triggering. For me, they're triggering given like my experiences with my, my, my own mental health. I think mm-hmm. what can be really challenging when we're creating content for large groups of folks is that asking for folks to think about their needs um, can seem like a demand or can seem like in a way that you're tone policing. So I think for this person who is like, you know what, this is my everyday life. Um, this is how I I have been experiencing my mental health. So in some way, you're telling me how to live through my trauma or live through my mental illness. And you're kind of policing my expression of that and how I'm healing through that. And I can ex- totally hold space for folks to feel like, who are you to tell me? Um, how to deal with my stuff. And I think mm-hmm. that, that I recognize that. And I recognize that that could be really in a way negating the fact that we're trying to create inclusive spaces and we're trying to have conversations, but we're telling people how to have those conversations. And I recognize that. However, I do think that at some point we do have to recognize that there there's a gradient of what is an individual experience and a collective experience. So I think for a lot of folks, mm-hmm. most folks might see those images and be triggered by them. As an individual, my relationship to my body might not reflect the needs and desires of my community. But if I'm creating content for other folks, then I probably should consider their needs and then reflect on it and see what I want to do with it. Um, I don't know if that's like a good answer for you. That's kind of my approach. Yeah. Um, I would put up a content warning 100%. I also might not even share it because I also just know that for me, I might not have the capacity to see it. And that's why when we give content warnings and trigger warnings, we provide people the consent or the opportunity Mm -hmm. to say, no, thank you. I'm going to keep scrolling. And that's why I think they're really powerful. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I don't think it was like really a right or wrong answer. I was just very curious on kind of your perspective on it. Um, Because, yeah, like I can understand kind of both sides of it and not wanting to feel like you have to hide yourself or especially if it's like in in an obvious place on your body, for example. Um, And you don't want to feel like you have to cover it up. And like in person, you're not walking up to people saying, hey, trigger warning, there's this on my body. Um, But in the same sense, like you said, it's really important to give people the option and to have that consent to be like, you know what? Yeah, I do have the capacity to see this and mm-hmm. um, engage with this content right now. And some people just like that could be their breaking point, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I really like the way that you that you had put that. Um, and then in terms of even the word trigger, I find that right now it's like a trending word, like trigger. Oh, yeah. um, I know toxic's <laughs> another one and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and so I have gaslighting. That's another one too. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's top narcissism. Like we could, we could start a list here. Um, but one of the things is where do you think that that term is applicable? Because in my perspective and from my like research and learning, um, it's very associated with like specific, um, specific things such as like PTSD and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so Mm -hmm. I really try not to like use it even like you know, in a group chat, if someone like says something that like, I'm trying not to say like, oh, I'm so triggered by that. If I know that it's not a genuine thing, even though yeah. it's become such a common like term in our day to day usage. Um, yeah. Is that something that you that you have any thoughts on as well? well I have all of the thoughts. I think for me, <laughs> like, yeah, glasses are off. I have yeah, all of the serious. thoughts. <laughs> I, and this is where like my I guess like my school background and like 
existing on social media and just the work I do with Bloom, like kind of creates this like trifecta. Um, I, I think it's really important to differentiate between like content and trigger warnings. Content warnings are to address themes. Trigger warnings are to address specific instances that would relate to a trauma, like as you mentioned, PTSD. So for example, like themes might be like gore or like content might be like blood, for example. But like yes. a trigger warning could be identifying something that is an event that could trigger or discussion of an event that could trigger um, folks feelings of PTSD or kind of emotional distress as it relates to that specific situation, circumstance, or event. So um, for folks who are listening, I'm just going to provide some examples so that they don't also feel a little bit like overwhelmed given my mm -hmm. examples of what trigger warnings could be, but they could be like... You know, a content warning could be like discussion of abuse. A trigger warning could be like rape, sexual assault. So gotcha. I think those are like two ways to differentiate it. The word trigger is, I think, something that, as you said, it's gained such popularity and traction in a way it's kind of watered down what it could mean. But it also, mm -hmm. I think, because of everyone's embraced it in a way it's kind of lovely because people are becoming more in tuned with what makes them feel safe and not safe. If I'm going to have some terminologies become like watered down and well used, I'm happy with it because it means people have done enough exploration within themselves to know, like if I'm having a conversation about like a boyfriend who like yells at me or something um, and I'm feeling triggered by hearing that, that probably means I've reflected on my own experiences enough to know that I don't like hearing about this because it makes me think of XYZ relationship, um, which I think is great that people are arriving at that point. I just think that when we say trigger with, are we trying to assert a boundary? Because that's where I just wish folks would say, hey, like, you know what? I'm just going to put up a boundary up on this. I feel like this conversation is a lot for me right now. Um, how about we talk about, I don't know, cheesecake or something, uh, something great. I love cheesecake. Yeah. <laughs> I could always talk about cheesecake. Um, and I think that sometimes folks use the word trigger to create a boundary. Um, and then the reason why I think having the addressing that boundary is powerful because with your communication partner, they now know this is a boundary that this person has and I can practice that in the future. But when you say trigger, it could mean a whole bunch of things. And everyone's relationship with what that trigger is, is different. For example, like talking about, um, as I said, like talking about a partner who yells at you, that could be your trigger, but that person doesn't know enough why or how they relate to that trigger enough to actually exercise a boundary with their communication partner in the future. They might bring it up again because they don't know what triggering means to that person. Um, so I think using a boundary is a lot better for folks if they're going to have a continuous dialogue or a relationship. I, I don't know if you saw, I was like nodding my head. Yes. The entire time I was like, yes, yes. That's okay. <laughs> I also like, I'm feeling so silly because I keep looking at myself, not you because <laughs> my microphone's here and then I'm looking at myself and then I'm looking at you. And then I feel like I'm, and that, yeah, I'm sorry. Cause it's like, I it's think a good it's, deal. it's okay. It's, I don't blame you. Okay, great. <laughs> 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 You're making me blush, but yeah. So I agree because I think for a lot of folks like triggers, everyone has their own triggers, their own stuff and people mm -hmm. like what my trigger could be the same as it could be the same topic as your trigger, but my relationship with it could be completely different. So creating a boundary might look like, hey, I don't want to talk about this because it just doesn't make me feel good versus like what was triggering about that discussion? Was it talking about a relationship? Was it talking about like someone mm -hmm. verbally abusing you? There's so much openness to it. Mm -hmm. And I think now those conversations are starting, like you said, to become a little bit more normalized, especially like even boundaries is another like hot mm -hmm. topic right now. But I love that one. I'm like, I love this for everybody. Put all the boundaries. It's such good things. Um, but so I think it's important for people to then recognize like the different ways you can set boundaries and you don't have to be um you know, like there's a lot of flexibility and you can really curate it to what exactly you need um, mm -hmm. rather than, oh, I saw that on Instagram. So I'm going to apply that even though it may not be 
like a perfect fit kind of thing. Yeah. I also feel like I could talk to you about DEI stuff forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this is one of the things that also gets me going. So I'm like, yes, let's keep talking. Um, But I do find even your personal story so empowering and incredible. And so I would like to even just kind of like, and there are ways obviously that the work that you do um, and that these topics kind of mesh into your personal life as well. And so one of the things I was, I wanted you to tell me more about is kind of how does that shape your relationships in the context of even romantic partners? Um, Because I find that as someone that does, like I previously did occasional like DEI consulting and things like that. And right now in my role, um, I'm on like a hotline slash committee for it, but it's not really like the center focus of my Mm-hmm. job right now um but i find even from like that bits of experience in it that i have and the passion that i have for it i have a really hard time with partners um because i find that i don't want to be educating people in my personal time as well um mm. and in the sense that if someone's willing to learn and it's like an honest uh miscommunication or something they don't understand i'm happy to educate them but in the same sense Um, And I'm trying to remember where I read this, but essentially um, there was this woman of color and maybe maybe this was a reality TV show, to be honest. Um, Honestly, what is real anymore? Right? I completely get it. Uh, I think it was like too hard to handle or something. Anyway, don't judge. Um, But she was talking about how she was like she was a black woman and she was talking about how she always dated black men and was drawn to black men and someone was like why like what is the thing and she's like it's not a racial thing in the sense of oh I prefer the darker skin tone over the lighter she's like I couldn't care less but I do not want to have to spend my life explaining why I have my hair in a bonnet why no it was this is us oh there we go okay Um, she was saying you know I don't want to have to explain why I need like a silk pillowcase and explain why I need this and this and this all the time and so I found that super interesting because then I reflected back on my experiences and oftentimes um with partners like they have been of different backgrounds and things like that. And so like, I have no problem educating to a certain point, but then I recognize now that my capacity to like, sometimes I just want to be able to have an an educated discussion without it always being like a, I have to teach this kind of thing. Um, And so as someone that that is like your full-time focus, I'm curious to know what your experience with that is. Ooh. So, and you know what? I, I love that you've shared this, with me because I think for a lot of folks who are in any sort of position, whether it's DEI, counseling, mm-hmm. you know, being a manager, someone who has like, you know, stake in relationships and has the opportunity to deepen folks' relationships, you kind of wear that with you all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, it's it was definitely a journey. I, I was always very much so like, an advocate, social justice minded at heart, even when I was a kid, I think a lot of that was me subconsciously feeling so othered all the time that, and so disenfranchised when I was younger, just feeling like no one's like me. I can't put words to my experience, but you know, if you're treating me X, Y, Z, like I'm not going to allow you to treat me this way. So I've always been very much like social justice minded. Um, I'm going to put kind of tell you what's what's up all the time. But I also realize that like, is this helping my relationships? Like is, me mm-hmm. policing everyone all the time? Is it serving me? Is it serving yes. how I want my relationships to feel like? Do folks feel like they can't be their fullest selves around me because I'm going to, yes. like, you know, nitpick things, what they Criticize. say and criticize them. Um, I've had folks be like, oh, I forgot. I can't say that around you. And in my mind, I'm thinking you probably mm-hmm. shouldn't say that, period. Uh, but in general. Like, sure, yeah. Just in general, you shouldn't say it in general, but whatever. Um, and that was a really hard thing for me to, to deal with because I wanted to make sure that I was always like adding to a space. I am someone who cares way too much about how other people feel. Um, Mm -hmm. I've made it like my mission in life to make people feel safe, um, which is exhausting. So I try to find ways to do it that are like sustainable. And even in like my relationship with my partner, like my 
my fiance, he's like a dark skinned black man. And we have extremely fruitful conversations and intersectional conversations. And I remember talking to someone who uh, was also like a biracial black woman who was like, yeah, you know, I date a lot of white guys. And I said to myself, I, how I exist now and the work that I do now and the work I've done on myself as an individual, I don't want to have to do the emotional labor that is always like given to women because of gender roles, because of our society. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that tax plus the tax of being someone who experiences racism and having to explain it to someone else at home. Yes. I I don't want to have, and it's like a double tax or almost like the, the double energy that goes from the fact that, you know, for a lot of folks that I've experienced who are like cisgender men, they are not socialized or I guess rewarded to have conversations about their emotions and their needs. Um, and there are these expectations that, you know, men are supposed to be a certain way so that at home, I think in our interpersonal relationships, there is that skew. I'm extremely lucky that I have a partner who is very introspective and recognizes that this is how society was set up. And now we're, we don't have to be like that. I can be vulnerable. I can have like hard conversations. I can express myself. And I'm extremely lucky because I couldn't do it any other way. I can't teach Mm -hmm. at home and I can't teach at work either because I'm not turning off. And then the conversations aren't as fruitful, aren't as powerful. And then it changes your relationship that you have to the work. Um, It makes it feel as like you said, like I'm very animated when I talk about this. I love talking about this. And I, I don't, it doesn't feel like work because it's really just creating safer spaces for people. Um, but I, if I have to like fight tooth and nail to be seen and valued at home, I can't do that. And, mm-hmm. but what I think is also interesting is that a lot of the conversations that I've had that have been disenfranchising were from actually some of like my, Um, like blackmail partners that I've been with who have said things like, oh, you know, you're the first black woman I've ever dated. And, you know, I'm just not used to, you know, being talked to like this. And in my mind, I'm like, what? (laughs) And I was young and I was like, what do you mean? Like, sorry, what? He's like, yeah, you know what? Like you just, you ask, like basically holding this person accountable. He hadn't Mm -hmm. experienced that before. And I was like, this is, so heartbreaking and hearing just so many like anti-black sentiments about black women dark-skinned black women so many colorist takes and i thought like it's like i can't i can check this behavior and i can label it as colorist and explain it to you and tell you why that this is wrong but there's also like deep rooted layers to this and this is going to show up in other things and you know, I was young, I didn't really know any better. And I saw those behaviors show up in other parts of those relationships. And I was like, you know what, this doesn't serve me. This is not someone that I can, you know, grow a life with. Um, and I think that a lot of folks, as you said, like, yes, I'm sure you've probably heard other black men say stuff like this. Yeah. And it's so anti-black, so colorist, and it's icky. And it's like, you know, do you know where you came from? Like you came from a queen. How can you say these things? Mm-hmm. That is, it almost got me emotional there for a minute because I was like, this resonates so deeply, even in the terms of like, doesn't even matter if it's like, if we take away the romantic aspect of a relationship, like, am I, am I serving this relationship or is it just, I'm constantly picking out things and trying to hold you accountable. And then where's that going? Like, is it actually benefiting either of us? Um, And that's definitely something that like I've experienced in the past a lot. Um, And even, you know, I find, and I'm sure you've gotten this line before people. And as you had mentioned, people being like, well, I've never been with a black woman and things like that. And I've gotten it from, you know, white men constantly. Mm. Um, and things like that and it was like I don't want it to be like hi I'm your token black woman nice to meet you um let me know how I can help would you like to go eat some stereotypical food and continue this conversation um you know I don't want it to be in that capacity I want it to be like that's that's not something I can control so that's not something that we should 
be focusing on. Um, and I think that one of the interesting things was I was on Instagram the other day and I believe her Instagram handle is just Jamie. It might be just Jamie P. Um, I will link it below. Um, Mm -hmm. but she is a trans woman and Mm -hmm. essentially she had shared a really heartbreaking story about, you know, a family member that she had a similar experience with in the sense that they didn't understand the essence of being trans and they didn't really honor it. And so in the caption, she kind of explains how, you know, I then have to experience all the weight of being trans and then the weight of being trans in society and then come home and try to mm-hmm. explain explain all of that and the impact that it has. Explain and my that, humanity, my existence, yes. my my need to be treated as a valued, cherished member of society for existing and existing alone. That's what everyone deserves mm-hmm. to just be loved for existing. That's it. Exactly. And so she had chosen uh, to kind of end and limit that relationship with that family member because, you know, it comes to a point where you're like, this isn't serving either of us, um, as we have recognized already. So I think that's really like it's really something that I wish the conversations kind of opened up a little bit more about, because oftentimes people will be like, well, why can't I say that and things like that? Um, And I hope that one day. I I was just speaking to someone and they were saying, you know, in this line of work, especially, and in these conversations, it's like we're planting the seed, even though we might not be able to enjoy the shade of the tree, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe, maybe in future generations, maybe my, maybe my great grandchildren, you know, things like that. It's hard to think of like, you know, in my generation, maybe I will forever have to live with people saying I've never been with a black woman and things like that. Um, but, you know, hopefully one day those conversations can get to a point where that's not something that they're like, oh, yeah, this is not socially acceptable to say. And they recognize not to say it. Um, 100%. And then in terms of your family, and I'm kind of taking this in a slightly different direction than I anticipated, because I had <laughs> anticipated kind of focusing on your experiences as a woman of color. Um mm-hmm growing up in Canada, because I think in terms of that, and we've even spoken about this, like I have a a lot of similar experiences um, that I wanted to kind of share and discuss because I lived in different places of Canada and I was partially adopted. So I lived with like my biological mom and my dad adopted me when I was like three. So I never really say like, I would Mm -hmm. never say stepdad or anything like that. Like he's my dad. Um, But realistically, I was the only one that looked like me and my family and so things like that. But I had this conversation um, and I'll be kind of open and transparent. And so I'll give like the background so it makes sense to listeners that might not understand. But essentially, I realized um, that with my son, I was struggling with like postpartum depression. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know what it is, but I don't feel very connected to him. I'm like, I can't tell if I love him, if he loves me, things like that. Of course, I like take care of him to the best of my abilities. I put everything I can into raising him. But I'm like, there's something there that I can't name, but I feel like it's missing. And so I found it absolutely heartbreaking because I'm like, he deserves a mom that's like obsessed and in love with him um, when realistically I was, but I couldn't see it. And so I was speaking to my aunt, who is a therapist, and she was saying that she had similar struggles when her kids were young, but it wasn't that they didn't love her or she didn't love them. It was that she didn't feel worthy. And Mm. I was like, interesting. So then the next week I had a meeting with my therapist and I sent like a little synopsis email in advance to be like, Hey, here's everything we need to touch on. So uh, we could save time in our, Mm -hmm. in our session. And so in our session, we're chatting about it. And she's like, the second I saw that email come across my thing, I was like, this is it. This is the thing we've been trying to focus on since you were pregnant. We couldn't figure it out. And it was just that I didn't feel worthy of my son loving me. And she's like, what I find interesting is that worthy, um, and that feeling of self-worth is really tied to a sense of belonging. And then she asked, and she was like, was there ever a time in your life that you truly felt like you belonged? And I 
sat there for a minute and I was like, I don't think so. And then it plagued me like going home for weeks later because I'm like, I don't think so. Like in the sense that I love my family, we are all to this day, super close. I've gotten to know like my biological siblings that I didn't know growing up. Um, even in terms of like being a parent, I have like mom groups and things like that. Um, but backing up into that, like in my family, I was the only one that was my unique mixture of like European and African. Um, so I was the darkest in our household. And mm -hmm. then we lived in all across Canada and usually in smaller cities and towns. Um, and then often I was the only person of color or like one of a few. Mm -hmm. um, and that even kind of, I think this is the first, like where I work now is the first workplace where there's like multiple people of color, including black people. It's typically mm -hmm. like several and then me as the black person. Um, and so I just really thought on it and I was like, that sense of belonging was never really there mm -hmm. for me. And I'm at the point now where, you know, I've processed it and I've been able to think of like in other essences, how I can place that belonging and kind of recognize that. But I'm curious to know, um, since our experiences were similar, but obviously not the same, excuse me, what your journey and relationship with belonging is. And I know that was a very oh. long lead up to it. No, that's okay. <laughs> I am the queen of long lead ups. And I first want to thank you for sharing that with me. Can be like, as I see it, like it's hard, like dealing with mm -hmm. that and holding it and knowing that sometimes like you're never going to stop holding it. Um, so mm -hmm. I just thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that with me. Um, yeah, I definitely <clears throat> have a lot of I've spent a lot of time, energy, money, dealing with my relationship to myself and feeling loved mm -hmm. and feeling accepted. Um, and I've had a lot of spiritual work done on me. Um, and in the spiritual work, it talks about like soul, like I think it's called like soul deaths. And these are things that happen mm -hmm. in your life where little parts of your soul shatter like glass and they will never be whole again. Like there's parts of you that will just never be whole again. Um, mm -hmm. And there are some things that happen to you where you could shatter and you can do the work and you can glue yourself back together again. And those parts of you will be, will be fixed. It won't be the same, but it'll be fixed or sometimes more beautiful. And I think that my relationship to being adopted and being a person of color and my own journey is very much like a mixture of shattered pieces and really beautiful like pottery vases, um, things mm -hmm. that are great and things that will just never be the same. I was very lucky that, you know, I never felt that my biological mom didn't love me. I growing up, my parents told me a story about my adoption every night before I went to bed. So I knew that I wasn't I giving that. up. Oh, they 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 did it right. Like they did it right, right, right. Amazing. I, I never like didn't know that I was adopted. I always like felt loved by my biological mom. Um and I never felt like she didn't want me. So I never had that in me per se. But I mm -hmm. always felt that like everything was just so hard. I felt like I was constantly fighting, constantly fighting to be seen, to be heard, to be mm -hmm. accepted. And I realized that that was because I was just trying to hold on to something, trying to ground myself and how because of the process of being adopted, despite the fact that I felt loved, that is like a love, a love loss. That's part of who I am that I will never be whole. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I won't be able to replace it or, or repair other parts of it, but I've kind of come to accept that this, these are the cards that I've been dealt. Um, and they are, they've spiritually altered me, but in a way that I feel very lucky because I think it creates such vulnerability and empathy for folks. Um, and I had to do a lot of work on that because I realized that I was just really good at fighting. I was really good at, um, I always felt like I wasn't being heard. I always felt like I wasn't really um, valued. Um, and I never necessarily felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I had to work so hard 
to belong. I knew I mm-hmm. belonged, but I felt like if I'm not fighting for this or fighting for something, then it's not real. And that's what I just thought like that life was. Um, and I had to do a lot of healing with that. And even now I've come to like another relationship with it because my biological mom was forced to give me up because I was black because she's from the South. She was from like a Catholic, extremely racist family um, that said like, we can't have like a black kid living with us because my biological father was incarcerated um, and was a black man. And she was on her own. She had no one else. And they said, we're not helping you put her up for adoption. We're not helping you with this. And she was young. She had nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. And now I have like just anger. (laughs) And I think the anger that I have is not at her per se. It's more the fact that like you robbed her of this relationship. Because I see, because I have a relationship with her now, and I see that that broke her. And I feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, racism took that from her. It it did. It it took her the biggest gift that she's ever had, and she was never the same. So I, yes, have created a life where I, things feel like it belongs and it feels okay. But I know with that, someone has like the deepest loss. Um, And like they were never the same. And it's just... It's extremely heartbreaking and it's really just forced me to kind of practice compassion and try to be reflective when I'm holding on too tight and when I'm being reactive because that's what shows up, I think. I don't know if you can relate to that, just being like, yes, I'm not being heard or I don't feel like you're hearing me yes. or um, – I don't feel like you're taking the time to understand me. And that's how I felt all the time is misunderstood. And I think that's because of how I look, because of my story, because of having depression, because of just growing up. It's not easy for these, for anyone really. Mm -hmm. And I just shared something on my personal Instagram and it was someone had shared it from like their therapist session. And it was like, anger is the part of you that loves you. Um, and Mm -hmm. I am definitely misphrasing this, but it was like, it's the part of you that recognizes that you deserve better, or it's the part of you that recognizes that this treatment doesn't align with your worth kind of thing. And so I read that and I was like, Oh my gosh. And so even in the way that, because anger is a human reaction and there's no way that we can just like erase that from who we are or our future, but just even recognizing that like, that's what it is. And so we can choose to let it manifest in different ways. And like you said, even if it's in a way of like patience and, um, compassion, um, you can still be angry and be compassionate with someone rather than, you know, aggressive. Um, So I think that's really powerful. And I thank you too for sharing your story because, um, you know, like for me, even sharing that story about, you know, the postpartum depression and things like if my aunt didn't share that with me, I wouldn't have been able to be like, oh, and had that breakthrough, which actually made a really significant impact in my life. Um, And so even I know for um, other people, and that's why I started this podcast in the beginning, it's because there were so many conversations that I'm like, if someone would have shared this, even like this part of their story with me, it would have made things so much easier. Um, And so I appreciate you contributing to that and also sharing um, things that like even your words have an impact on me. So thank you. Um, and I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, so what is one part of your story and it can be literally anything, um, that you want other people to hear? Hmm. Oh my gosh. My life feels sometimes like a weird movie. Cause I, I can't even sparks note it sometimes. Cause it's like, people just won't believe me. Um, right. I think I'll for me, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheerleader. I love it. I love to see yeah. it. I love it. Right? Um, I think for me, something that was very profound and I spent a lot of time in, in therapy for this. And I think folks should 
should know is that like you have like the power to heal and create your own safety and you can do it and it's going to take time and there's might be some ugly truths throughout that process but you can create safety for yourself whatever that looks like whether it's like having your own mental health be consistent and or like having your physical environment be consistent and safe or just like finding how you contribute to situations and helping you do the best to control them in a way that makes you feel affirmed and safe and loved. And that was something that to kind of go back to what I said earlier about like the fighting. Um, I think for a lot, hopefully folks will think I'm like a boxer, like I'm physically aggressive or anything like that. That's <laughs> not what I mean. I guess I just mean is that um, I was someone who just felt like, like how an advocate fights for a cause, like, you know, believe me, see my worth, see my value, um, listen to me, understand me. And I think a lot of that for me, those feelings that I had for so long, um, you know, see my worth, as you said, or see that I belong, as you mentioned earlier, was coming from the fact that like, I just didn't feel safe. And I think that when I found ways to create my own safety, my world opened up because I felt that I could trust myself again. Because I think for a lot of folks who are struggling with mental health, or at least for me, um, when you don't trust yourself, it is so hard to ground yourself and to find what works. And when I figured out that I could trust myself and I could trust that I was going to react to life in a way that empowered me and made me feel proud and made me feel like I could take a chance on myself, my whole life changed. And it was honestly, I don't think that I, I would be who I am today if I wasn't able to have those breakthroughs. Thanks to my therapist. <laughs> Shout out to the therapists yeah. out there because y'all are incredible. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Um, wow, I feel like this was almost like a free therapy session. I'm like, wow, I feel good. <laughs> well, um, you but, are a ray uh, of energy, so you, you make it easy to share. So do you. So do you. Um, is there anything right now that you're working on or trying to raise awareness for? Ooh. Oh, my goodness. There are so many things. Um, because there are so many things, I think that I would just have folks to find ways to see what's happening on like the macro lev level, like, you know, Woe wo versus raid. Um, yes. so my gosh, I really struggle with R's and W's, and I mess that one up so bad. Roe versus Wade. We get um, it. A lot of like the anti-trans legislation, um, mm -hmm. the lack of belief in having anti-racism baked into our curriculum on like an Ontario-based level. Um, mm -hmm. I would just start having those conversations locally, tackling these issues, tackling white supremacy, type tackling homophobia, classism, capitalism is an everyday job and find a way to do that everyday job that's sustainable by having those local conversations, go out and vote um, and vote mm -hmm. for folks that feel like can make you feel valued and affirmed. Um, and if you feel like you are not valued in the colonial system, which is our voting system, I get that. Um, so just find a ways that work for you and help make your community better because we only have each other and that's really mm -hmm. it on like things that I'm working on. Stay tuned for summer school via bloom. Yes. And one of these days I'm going to launch a podcast. So this Beautiful. whole setup motivated me. So maybe eventually okay. I just have to figure out a way to, to balance. Cause I don't think one microphone works for folks. So I got to figure out what I'm going to do. But that's right. kind of my next few steps. Yeah. And people don't want to listen to me like blabber on forever. So I mean, I would. <laughs> oh, you're really nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> kind, I should say. I feel like nice is, I'm trying not to use the word nice because nice isn't always kind. Uh, kind means like you're centering that's the impact true. of the people that you care about and you see their mm -hmm. inherent worth and value. There are a lot of nice people that do really microaggression-y shit. So yeah. I'm not using the word nice anymore. You know what? I love it. Um, well, thank you again. There's so much that I want to say, and I'm almost like, let's just keep talking forever. Um, 
but I really, really appreciate Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your energy, your storytelling, your wisdom and insight, and even, you know, the education that you were able to provide on this episode. Um, for myself and listeners, um, you're incredible. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I hope you have a fantastic day. And just like weekend, it's so sunny out, which just makes us all yes. so much better. And thanks all the listeners for bearing with me and um, trusting what I have to say. Thank you.